So first up, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Have we not spoken since the New Year? We have not. So oh. uh, yes, this is actually our first recording of 2019. Bloody hell. So we... Uh, Deepest apologies to uh, our listeners for uh, the long gap where a dedicated Station 13 following was starved of uh, <laughs> excellent Station 13 talkback content. Actually, on that note, I think we should have a, a very special uh, mention and a very special hello to uh, one of our uh, listeners in Russia, I believe, is it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's... Um, Vitaly Suvorov. Suvorov? I'm not sure. He, 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 yes, he was actually complaining that he had uh, dirty dishes piling up because of a lack of Station 13 content. Yes, I hate to think after four weeks what his kitchen must look like now, but uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> all, is, all is not lost. We're with That's you right. now, Vitaly. Yes, we, we do our bit to, uh, to service the domestic needs of the, uh, the Russian household. Uh, <laughs> so that's great. So I think um, we, have a, we have a lot to go through. Um, before we get started, though, I should uh, I should just apologise that I am actually extremely sick. the The room is spinning around uh, spinning around my head, and I uh, have uh, I have the chills and a fever, so I'm permanently yeah. cold right Are you now. Sure, you can do this. <laughs> I, you know, this is dedication, <laughs> dedication for uh, Vitali's uh, washing up load. But yes, firstly, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Yes, sorry, sorry about last time. It was uh, obviously because my microphone was in for repair, and annoyingly, it arrived back. My new—I think they just sent me a brand new one, right? And it arrived mere hours after we would usually record the show. So, it, had it arrived just a couple of hours earlier, we might have uh, made it in time. But never mind. Everything seems to be working okay now. Everything seems to be working okay. Cross fingers, uh, touch wood, cause a little bump in the audio. Uh, yeah, I've recorded a couple of things since then because obviously I've got my Latin podcast and other projects. Uh, so, mm. um, so far, all of those seem to have been fine. In fact, better than my last mic ever was. Like the last one, the buzzing problem seemed to go away at one point. But if you looked at it in a spectral analyzer, even though you couldn't really hear it, there was a faint buzzing still there. You could see the sort of lines. Mm. Uh, whereas with this new one, uh, if you look in a spectral analyzer, as I've just been doing as part of my efforts to improve my Japanese pronunciation, I've had some friends, uh, well, my wife and a friend, very good friend and friend of the show, Tama, recording some words for me so I can compare their pitch accent. Wow. And you're using a, a frequency analyzer to compare your pitch. Well, <laughs> I mean, I was just listening, but I, I have this frequency analyzer and I was like, well, I wonder what it looks like. Like, can you actually see it? That's amazing. That's, that is hardcore, hardcore linguistic, <laughs> uh, linguistic techniques there. It, it is. Well, his recording is very clear. Uh, and so you can you can actually see it like he was speaking quite clearly and the quality of his recording is quite clear right the recording that i did with my wife was just like over dinner with an ipad okay. sitting on the table half a meter away so it's not not very good quality right and so that that is both harder to pick out with the ear but also a lot less clear in the spectral analyzer as well so <laughs> anyway that's great yeah oh and a bit more follow-up on the japanese efforts this year uh, I looked up the JLPT test, and it looks like in the whole of America, they only do it once per year. They don't do the summer test. Oh, right. So unless I find myself in Japan around June, July, or whenever it is, uh, which is not out of the question, but probably not 
totally likely. Uh, I'll probably I think I'll probably end up doing the JLPT uh, in December. I see. Uh, so well, best gives of luck. me a whole year to 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 practice. So that's good. Although I've done, I went out just after we did the last show and bought all the books. So now I've kind of got to do it because otherwise I've got to explain why I spent like a hundred dollars on books and, <laughs> and then didn't do the test. Uh, but since buying them, I have been really focusing on the accent side of my. Uh, challenge for the year rather than the JLPT side so I've barely opened them so we'll see right. how that goes but <laughs> well best of luck I'm sure you will uh, I'm sure you will pass with with flying colors thank you well we'll we'll see it doesn't look easy I must say flicking through the the books but never mind how was your mm. trip to Scotland yes it um uh, so I've been actually uh uh looking forward to talking to you about uh, our trip to Scotland uh, and we've actually picked up a few new listeners in Scotland. So, uh, Very good. you know, uh, there are uh, uh, Scottish listeners out there who have been waiting many, many days, many weeks for uh, for this episode to come. So here it is. Scotland was fantastic. I mean, I'd never been to Scotland before. Mm-hmm. The furthest north in Great Britain that I'd been to previously was Cambridge. Yes, which, which is not very far north. <laughs> no, it's not very far north. I really had no idea what to expect. And, you know, actually I was sort of analysing my impressions of the country and the people mm. in the days following the trip and thinking that it's curious the the sort of stereotype that Scotland has. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, I went there and I met some wonderful people. It was a beautiful wonderful cross-section of the people and uh, some various places there. And only, of course, the tip of the iceberg as far as what the country has to offer. Mm. But I was curious that I was thinking that, well, in some respects, I was a little surprised by a few things. But then other respects, I was kind of pleasantly um, sort of uh, relieved that, oh, it's just as I thought it was going to be. Mm. And I was sort of playing through my mind, like, where do those stereotypes of Scotland come from? Which, which stereotypes are you talking about? Because I'm not sure if the same stereotypes apply in in Australia as do in, in England, for example, where we're much right. closer. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I mean, to begin with, you've got the um, the sort of the cultural stereotypes, you know, you've got kilts and bagpipes and haggis, right, and, right. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Then you've got the the uh, the stereotype of the people that's kind of formed by characters like uh, you know Scotty and Star Trek and <laughs> Billy Colony and Col- Col- Colony Col- Connolly <laughs> Connolly sorry Connolly. Billy but Billy Colony is uh, is a English public schoolboy I think right sorry mate um, <laughs> Billy Co- Connolly that sort of you know dry wit aspect of of Scottish people I think is you know th- those. Those sorts of television personalities and characters, uh, mm. are, and a very you know various Simpsons characters and this and that and you know, right. I, I was kind of figuring out where my the 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 notion of what Scotland and Scottish people was like in the days after the trip, and I really couldn't place anything. So I realised that wow, it's you know it is a, a fairly poorly represented country in popular culture. I think somehow. <laughs> Um, so just to walk you through the um, the, the things that we did, um, we flew from Stockholm, mm-hmm. um, a little piece of trivia. Um, my son, who is nine, mm. loves airport security. Mm. I see. <laughs> he said, oh, are we going to get to go through the security queue? You know, is that where you get to like take, take out your iPad and take off your shoes and like go through that kind of gateway thing and, you know, and then they'll, they'll give you your bag and... 
and, and you've got to take, you know, your belt off and your jacket it's very, off. Yes. Very exciting. <laughs> very so, exciting. It's like, how, how is it that you find that, you know, pleasurable? Is it like, it's, it's cool because you get to do all this stuff and it's an airport. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so the, um, uh, we had an interesting episode at Customs in Edinburgh. We, uh, uh, you know, the Customs officials will ask you questions. And obviously, because we have non-European passports, they're going to be wondering why we're in Scotland. So the man says to me, what are you here for? And I said, oh, I've actually come to visit my uh, friend and colleague, and we're going to be going to the south of Scotland uh, to spend New Year with his wife's family. Mm. And he said, oh, that's very nice. Where are you going? So I said, um, it's a place called Kirkubri. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, Kirkubri. He said, Kirkubri. And I said, um, uh, Kirkubri. Yeah, and at this point I was... <laughs> I was getting a little nervous that, you know, maybe I was going to get busted for contraband, you know, uh, trafficking or something. <laughs> and, and so I said, well, um, I don't really know how you're supposed to say it, but it's spelled, it's spelled Kirkud Bright. And he said, oh, Kirkud Bright. Yeah, I know it. Yeah, I don't know how to really say it. I'm actually English. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out that it's actually Kakubri and right. not Kirkubri. Right. And this is one of the things that um, uh, my friend was saying, that one unusual aspect of Scotland and actually a lot of... Ireland and England and Wales is that the the names of these places were created before the spelling of them was ever conceived. Right. So in in many situations, you know, the spelling just makes no sense at all compared to how you actually say it. <laughs> and I think um, a place that we visited on uh, on the latter half of our trip uh, called East Kilbride mm-hmm. is another example. Of this is not pronounced East Kilbride; it's pronounced East Kilbride. Right. Right. East Kilbride, not Kilbride. So I don't know. Yeah. Isn't the stress on the last syllable as well? Isn't it East Kilbride? Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Scotland. <laughs> um, I don't know either. I'm also English. So, so <laughs> yeah. So we had um, we had one uh, short day in in Edinburgh, and then we um, took to the took to the roads to drive down to Kakubri, mm-hmm. which is a uh, a beautiful beautiful little rural town uh, in the very south of Scotland. Scenery was kind of uh, iconic, sort of. British scenery. You know, you have these rolling grey, uh, rolling green hills and grey skies, and uh, every now and then, you know, at the end of the day, the, this this incredible ray of golden sunshine will poke its way through the the, the grey clouds just on the horizon. Mm. For a moment, you get to sort of witness this amazing kind of spotlight of twilight. You know, uh, uh, sunset that just kind sort of surges across the land, across these uh, rolling hills and. Scotland has um, uh, an impressive amount of wind farms. Mm. Uh, something that my wife pointed out was quite nice to see that, you know, it gives the land a very nicely sort of dynamic feel to it when everything is always moving. <laughs> oh, I see, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. You've, you've got these thought about that. big white kind of, um, you know, uh, turbines just sort of gracefully, peacefully, gently moving on the horizon, which was, which was a nice sight. The area around Kukubri is... Uh, geologically very unusual. Mm. It's actually formed by uh, receding glacial shelves, mm-hmm. which cause the ground to sort of lump up in various parts. So it, it looks like lumpy land, basically, with these these grass-covered sort of mounds, large mounds all over the place. Mm. Very, very interesting and just, you know, utterly beautiful. I, I couldn't help but drawing an analogy in my mind with Middle Earth. <laughs> So I don't know whether that's 
uh, obviously it's not just because of Peter Jackson's movies, which kind of paint that picture, mm. but also if you if you look at uh, some of Tolkien's illustrations of what he thought Middle Earth looked like, especially the Shire, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's, there's obvious parallels there with the geology that was surrounding him. So just beautiful. So we spent uh, New Year and several days down there in Kukubri, uh, various things that we did. One one special attraction was that unusually, very, very unusually and very, very luckily, mm. uh, we were able to experience a clear night oh. in, the middle, in the middle of rural South Scotland. Very nice. And that was breathtaking. Um, mm. You know, people, uh, listeners who have, um, you know, been out in the countryside or camping or places where there's very little light pollution will understand that when you see, you know, the night sky... Uh, when there's no cloud cover at all and there's no light pollution from the ground, it's, you know, you just, it, it's amazing. You know, you wonder why it is that you, they're like there's so many stars up there and it's, it's sort of a bit of a disappointing feeling that you not generally you can't see them because of all the light that we produce. Mm. So that was a wonderful experience for my children too. Actually, the, the last time that I'd seen the Milky Way mm. that clear uh, as this big kind of, splatter of paint across the sky was probably when I was about my son's age when my father took me camping in the Australian outback mm. um, that also is an environment with you know extremely little light pollution and uh, mm. you, know, you get to experience the same thing so I think the last time I saw it was in Australia as well actually all oh, right when when we went for our honeymoon and and we went out onto the um, onto the pontoon at the Great Barrier Reef and actually stayed overnight there Mm. And so we were so a very different sort of minimal light pollution environment because the you know we're on the sea, right? But that was that was amazing as well, just to see the stars just completely openly. Yeah, uh, you know, generally if you look for long enough, you'll see uh, a shooting star as well, which is which we didn't see any on this occasion. But uh, mm. other things we did while we were there, um, played a lot of music, played a lot of board games, uh, sat in front of an open wood fire, ate haggis. Mm. which was um, second my second time eating haggis. It's great. It tastes a lot like um, stuffing that you would have with, what, roast chicken, I guess. Mm. Oh, interesting. I think I, we usually have like the sage and onion stuffing, so I think of it as less of a meaty thing. But some people, you know, you also get meat stuffings, don't you? Right. Maybe it could be just the the kind of stuffing that we used to have um, when we'd have roast chicken in uh, when I was growing up in Australia, yeah. perhaps. But it's kind of a very spicy version of that. Mm, yeah. Really, really delicious. It was a privilege to be in such a location because it isn't generally the kind of thing that you would have the um, uh, the opportunity to go to. It's like a rural home mm. and you have, you know, a family who there. And in this, in this, uh, with these particular people you know we have uh their friends and their family and relatives and local people Mm. all just kind of sort of turning up as we approached new year uh and it was a huge huge house you know one of these lovely rural british houses that has a name and not a number Mm -hmm. and um it was the first taste of you know genuine scottish hospitality in that one thing i found very nice uh and my wife actually commented on which is an interesting comment from a Japanese person. She said that the hospitality is extremely unconditional. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't it doesn't matter who you are. Like nobody really asked us, like, why are you here, or like, how are you connected with all these people? Right. It's just that right. you know, we're, we're there, and yeah. can you cook, or can you wash dishes, or can you play music, and can you hold a good conversation? And that's really the only conditions. Right. <laughs> and everybody just sort of 
chipping in to cook and um, and clean and uh... I mean that household in particular is extremely open as well. I've also been one of the random turner uppers okay. at that house as well, and it is very like you may as well have known everyone there your whole life. Like it doesn't exactly. really feel like you're meeting them for the first time somehow. Yeah, that's right, and. It was just a, a really wonderful kind of ideal model of family and community, really. You know, I think mm. uh, when I was smaller, my father often used to emphasize that aspect of family. And, you know, being the, you know, the, the confused, angsty teenager that I was, I was never, <laughs> never really, you know, sort of on, on that wavelength, really sort of understood why is this important. You know, I don't I'm related to these people, but we don't really share anything in common, mm. you know. Uh, but just this emphasis on, again, you know, like a family relationship is unconditional in that you are related to somebody and whether you like it or not. In this case as well, it was very sort of unconditional. Are you a nice person? Are you good in a conversation? All right, you know, here we are. It, it was it was great. It was a nice example of the the sort of punctuating of the year Mm. with these kinds of ritual ritualistic sort of things with a sort of a gathering of the family around new year um associated friends and local people and and you know yeah all in all it was just a wonderfully rustic kind of um, humble is is a good word i think i'd use to like no nothing flamboyant no fireworks or or you know loud music or uh, the other thing that was interesting was that yes there was a lot of drinking mm. but there was a lot of you know there was children around as well and I remember actually before we went down there, uh, my friend's wife said, I said, she said, do you like to drink? And I mm. said, well, you know, I, I do like to drink. I mean, I, I prefer to drink in moderation. I don't, I'm not really a, you know, a huge let's get legless kind of drinker. Right, right. <laughs> um, and she said, well, that's going to have to change. And I, was, <laughs> and I was actually a little bit worried that it was going to be kind of like a, you know, wild, sort of like a wild thing where people are sort of, <laughs> forcing you to throw down shots of, of hard liquor and stuff like that. Mm. But as it turned out, nobody really cared and it was just fine. And everybody, it, it was just very pleasant, you know, and I think that that was just really wonderful. So my um, my children enjoyed it a lot. I don't think that they'd ever really experienced something like this before mm-hmm. with, with this. I mean, obviously being that they were born in Japan, now we live in Sweden, mm-hmm. we're sort of away from family most of the time. So... Mm-hmm. Family has a sort of a, a much more tighter, uh, immediate meaning to them than uh, the idea of cousins and and so and so's friend or so and so's boyfriend or, or that kind of connection between people. So it was really nice for them to experience that. After uh, Kukubri, mm. we were invited to uh, my friend's parents' place in East Kubride. East Kubride is south of Glasgow, mm-hmm. and so we drove up there and. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of wondering to myself, like, you know, that classic Scottish accent, I haven't heard it yet. Like, wh- where is it? This, mm. Everybody here is, speak, is very mild. <laughs> uh, when we got to East Cabride, mm. that's when, yeah, okay. So <laughs> there's that line, I guess, between Edinburgh, uh, rural Scotland, perhaps, in the south, and uh, Glasgow. And the, uh, the accent was uh, far more kind of quintessentially Scottish. There are various occasions when I sort of had to kind of knit my brow and lean forward slightly and concentrate on what was being said to me <laughs> to actually pick up the words, but it was it was fantastic. So we had a wonderful um, uh, meal, which included a pavlova, mm-hmm. 
which uh, my friend's mother made. F- um, I don't know if it was for my behalf, but uh, for those who don't know, pavlova is actually a New Zealand slash Australian dessert. Is it really? It is. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, so uh, it was. It was great. I mean, it's just like laughing and eating, and you know. Uh, my friend's sister turned up with her family, and again, this is sort of emphasis on 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 uh, family and and community it was was wonderful. Mm. There was one interesting observation that I had, which I wanted to share with you. I found it very fascinating that the the class structure in Great Britain mm-hmm. is very much prevalent in Scotland as well. Okay, I guess there's no real no real reason for it not to be. But there seems to be there was this there was always this kind of uh, bedrock of class, and whether you were posh, or whether you were middle class, or whether you were not middle class, and something else, and what sort of class people were, and I think that I could see that you know on the surface it didn't matter at all, and everybody interacts with everybody you know, on the same level and it's very, um, you know, uh, certainly very um, uh, open and, you know, there's no discrimination in that sense. Mm-hmm. But for sure there was always this sort of undercurrent of the idea of class with this person being privileged, posh, this person not being so, or this person being sort of middle class. And it goes, I mean, it's like any kind of cultural observation that you make in a country, the people there for them it's you know it's not even questioned like that's just the way the world is or the way that their country is mm. uh, however as an outsider coming there for some reason i sort of assumed that the idea of class posh working class all of that was sort of a thing of the past in great britain mm. i didn't think that in modern day britain even with younger people it was i wouldn't say that it was important what class people were because at the end of the day you know, when people are interacting, nobody really cares. Mm-hmm. But certainly as a topic of conversation, it would come up every now and then uh, about, you know, so and so, so and so, so and so. Well, you know, he's actually, his parents are pretty posh, actually, but he's all right, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> sort of things like that. And I, I guess a certain element of it is tongue in cheek. And, you know, there's an understanding that it really doesn't matter. However, it was definitely there. And that's one mm. thing that kind of surprised me. I didn't, I'm, I want to emphasize that I was not disappointed or impressed mm. by that. It's just that this is an interesting aspect of Scottish slash English uh, slash Welsh, maybe Irish, I don't know, culture that I had underestimated. I didn't think that it would be so uh, kind of obvious as an undercurrent of conversation. Hmm. Interesting. I'm not sure. I mean, it's difficult for me to judge because I am British, I suppose. I don't think I've particularly felt that feeling in Scotland, specifically when I've visited, mm. not more than in England. In fact, I would have said probably less if you'd mm. asked me. But I, th- I mean, there's a feeling in Scotland and in the north of England generally that people from down south are a bit posh and also effeminate, I suppose, is the cliche. Right. Um, you know, Southern Ponces and all that. Mm. So there's a like there's a geographical divide which I feel is related to class. Mm. But I don't 
I don't know if I noticed in particular that undercurrent that you're talking about, although maybe that's just because, you know, it's like a fish noticing water, like I've been surrounded with it the whole time. So Yeah. That's right. Um, uh, the accent comes into play there as well. Um, oh, accent and... is definitely, yeah, throughout the UK, accent and class are extremely closely related. Right. No, I think that I just, I, I didn't expect that in modern day Great Britain with these young British, uh, Scottish and English people, that it would be even anything that anybody even thinks twice about that, you know, he but yeah as it as it turns out it came up many times during my time there that just as conversation there would be like these passing comments and always always it would be with friendly you know a friendly intention of of either humor or in or sort of admiration endearment or 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 anything you know it wasn't discriminatory or anything but it just mm. sort of came up again and again the the highlighting this 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 uh importance of of class and these sort of social stratas in 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 uh, british culture so yeah that was an interesting uh, observation that i had is this something that you felt was something that you'd noticed newly now like going to scotland or like when you visited cambridge were you just too young to notice do you think or did you because i would have thought that that would be a, a much more prevalent thing somewhere like cambridge where you really do have some of the most privileged people in in the country yeah gathered together with you know the the opposite of that i mean maybe cambridge tends to be more privileged all around whereas oxford i feel like has more of a mix like there's right oxford has a big homeless problem as well as having you know one of the the most the top most privileged universities in the country and so people really are thrown together a little more there mm. uh, i think i never really noticed it in cambridge just because the time that we had there which was about a week or so was not spent interacting with local people. Mm. You know, it was purely a, a tourist thing. And I was there with my wife and my parents. And, you know, we were kind of, uh, my father knows uh, the UK very, very well. So we're just basically following him and doing the things that mm. he was doing. And so there was never, not really like this time where I'm, you know, surrounded by 30 odd new faces from Scotland immediately, <laughs> you know, and have the, the opportunity to, uh, and, and the privilege to sort of talk to these people and get to know them a little bit. So there wasn't anything like that in Cambridge. So perhaps that's why. Mm. Certainly when I lived in uh, London, um, which I touched on, uh, I think last episode when I mentioned the, the, the story of how, how Alex came to meet Queen Elizabeth II. I'm sure she remembers it well. Yes, I'm sure she does. Uh, it's haunt, the day haunts her. Um, <laughs> yeah, certainly when I was living there, it, it was very obvious then, especially with uh, my friend who was singing in her uh, chapel choir and stuff like that. But being at that time, being that I was, what, I think I was 10, mm. uh, it, it, well, this is just the way this country is. So there wasn't mm -hmm. anything that was surprising about that. Mm. Since then, having, you know, again, had the wonderful privilege of, working with many people from England and Scotland alike and uh, uh, also, you know, 20-odd years of exposure to British things, culture and media and all and people and stuff. This time around, it just sort of stu stood out as something being much more stark than, uh, than previously. So mm. anyway. Interesting. So there you have it. That was uh, – I've got to mention at the end of the, the trip, we um, spent one day in Edinburgh and mm. um, we went to an excellent museum there. Um, got the sense that Edinburgh is definitely a place that's probably best enjoyed without children in tow. 
Really? No, for no other reason than just like going through the city. Mm. You know, you see it's, it's a wonderfully sort of culturally rich city and you kind of see things around you that you say, I'd love to just go to that right now. I'd like to just mm. walk over into there and try that. And uh, um, obviously when you have a, a four-year-old and a nine-year-old and a three-year-old actually uh, uh, who was with us uh, in tow, it's, you can't be spon- so spontaneous like that. But mm. yeah, a wonderful, uh, surprisingly picturesque city. Mm. It's a beautiful city. Yeah. Good food and yeah, and then uh, the last day we uh, got the uh, excitement of going through the security again at Edinburgh Airport um, <laughs> and found ourselves back in uh, in Stockholm. So that was my trip to Scotland. Very nice. Wow, sounds sounds like you got the the, the whole experience. Yeah, so. I mean, it just really was a, an excellent kind of uh, cross section. So yeah, now we share. Uh, notes here that uh, that have ideas of topics that we're going to be talking about. And uh-huh. this last one that you've written on here, I'm very curious about because <laughs> you've written Danny's weirdly emotional experience. Weirdly emotional experience. This, yeah, th- this may go nowhere. In which case, I'll just cut it. But <laughs> okay. I was, uh, this happened last night, and uh, it just struck me as a, a sort of in- potentially interesting uh, topic of conversation. But I don't quite know how to lead into it. Do you? I'm going to start it in a bit of a funny angle and then work back. Do you ever feel old? <laughs> um, uh, mm, it's hard to know how to answer that in a way that's conducive for this conversation. <laughs> um, uh, I, I will say no, but that's for reasons that probably aren't relevant to your weirdly emotional experience. So let's keep going. I don't, I've never particularly suffered from that. I've had a lot of friends who they've hit sort of particular markers and they felt like, you know, oh, this is when I'm starting to get old, right? Like when you turn 30 is, is a common one. And I've never really felt like that so much. Like I've always been doing quite a lot of things. So it's always felt like, and I've always had a load of things in mind for the next couple of years. It's like, these are my projects are the things that, that I'm aiming towards. Mm-hmm. And so somehow I've never really had that, that particular feeling. And another thing I think is that I've always, in a sense, I've always felt a little bit older than my years. Right. So I remember once when I was at university, I was about 20 and some friends and I were just uh, hanging around and we ended up doing this dumb quiz on the internet, which is like, how old are you really? And you answer a load of questions Mm. and it says like what age your answers were sort of correlated with. And I got, set at 32 right how old were you actually i was 20 20 okay (laughs) (laughs) right and everyone there like the the reaction from every single person was like yeah that sounds about right (laughs) (laughs) and and i kind of felt that way as well i had a sort of i don't know but a a bit of a sort of weird semi pride about being like a little bit i don't know hmm. mature i suppose which is in itself a slightly immature thing to think about yourself <laughs> it is really, isn't it? N- never mind that yeah. so anyway so and but i never updated that image of myself and i think this happens to a lot of people that they they see themselves as 21 for example and they never grow out of 21 that's the thing that you hear about a lot right hmm. but i saw myself as around 32 that throughout my 20s and so turning 30 was a complete non-issue because i still you know uh but i've now overtaken that 
uh, by a couple of years. I'm 34 now. And I've started to realize that I'm still seeing myself as 32. Oh. Like, there's, not a, there's not a big difference between 32 and 34, but I can see this continuing. And I'm, I, I can see I'm basically doing the never updating your self-image past 21 thing just 11 years late. <laughs> so that's, that's sort of background to this thing. Okay. Anyway, last night uh, I had a spare five minutes. And for the first time in ages, I thought, you know what? I'll have a go on the piano. I've got this piano that I've got sitting in the lounge that I bought when I was 25, which is nine years ago. And at that time, I was already, like, not that committed to piano. Right. (laughs) Like, I've done guitar for a long time. For a couple of years, between 20, 20, 22 sort of time, I was trying to sort of learn piano, but I... I didn't take lessons or anything and I didn't go through like learning technique or learning scales. I basically just bought a book of songs I liked and then just extremely slowly and through rote repetition learned how to play a couple of songs from from this book. Wow, that's quite impressive actually. Well, it's I don't know it, it was cool because you know, I'd grind away at this thing in this very frustrating way for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then somebody had come around like two months later and I'd be able to play this song that sounded much more impressive than, than my actual ability. Uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so one of the, the second song that I learned, it was a book of Tom Waits songs, which I bought actually in 2005 during my first trip to Japan. Hmm. And uh, the first song I learned was Martha's Song, I think is what it's called. And the second song I learned was Soldier's Things from the album Swordfish Trombones. Hmm. If I'm really putting the effort in, I might put a clip from it in now. That song, it's a lovely song. It definitely doesn't sound like the sort of song you would learn as your second song ever to play on the piano. But, you know, I again, I learned it by like extremely slowly, like, and I can't read music very well. So I would like take one bar and like bang away at it for, for days until I got that one and then I move on to the next one. Mm. So eventually I could sort of play this song. And, uh, and, and, and that was when I was around 22. And... I probably haven't played this song since then. Or, you know, maybe I played it a couple of times leading up 24, 24. It's probably been about 10 years since I've played this song. And when I did play it, I didn't even, like, I wasn't that good at piano, right? I just had learnt this one song. So anyway, I sat down at the piano and I thought, I'll play, I'll play this, I'll try and play this. First I played Martha's song, which actually is quite simple and I could do it. I was like, I'll have a go at that one. And I couldn't do it at all Mm. right it was just completely gone from my mind which in a way is is not that surprising (laughs) 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 because it's a song that i played like a few times over a decade ago on an instrument that i haven't maintained at all since then like the guitar i've always had within a couple of meters of my desk and even though i don't put a lot of effort into it like 
I kill time occasionally by just strumming it a little bit and keeping my sort of fingers exercised. But with the piano, I'm literally sort of scraping dust off it before I'm <laughs> getting ready to play. So I really haven't played at all in that time. So I was kind of sitting there getting a little bit upset. And for the first time, not quite the first time ever, but for, for very few times in my life, uh, this was one of a very few times that I thought to myself, you know, I guess this is one property of getting old, that I have these things that I think of myself as being able to do because I could do them mm. just about when I was 22. And the fact that 12 years has passed since then, <laughs> it, I just completely forget. And so I've, I, it seems strange that this thing, which in my mind is a thing that I could do, mm. that it felt like I was doing just a couple of weeks ago, I actually haven't done for 12 years and I'm no longer capable of doing. Mm. And so I kind of, I got a little bit sad, but at the same time I was sort of resigned to it. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to get used to this. I'm going to start to experience more of these moments where I'm I'm faced with things that I thought of as being able to, you know, as being capable mm. of doing, but actually, you know, it's been 10, 20 years or whatever. So I sort of, I was thinking like that for a couple of minutes and I thought, well, you know, it seems a shame to have gone to all that effort and, and not be able to do it anymore. So I'll dig out that old book. Right. So I went upstairs and I found the book and I got it out and I thought, this is going to be a pain. I'm going to have to go through that whole process again. So anyway, I opened the book to the right page and I'm, I still can't read music very well. So I slowly read through this thing. I'm like, what note is that? And that's the right hand. And what note is that? And that's the left hand. And I'm like reminding myself and going through this slow process. And I did this with the first bar, right? And it took me this length of time to sort of remind myself. And then I played it one hand at a time and then with both hands and then sped it up. And the weirdest thing happened that after reminding myself how this went and then speeding it up my hands just carried on playing mm. and the whole thing not actually not the whole thing but the whole of uh, the sort of introduction to the song this whole section of it completely came back to me and it was like i was witnessing myself play wow. it wasn't even like i was actively doing it right and despite having had that whole revelation and feeling like oh i guess i've forgotten it's been 10 years I suddenly was faced with a complete reverse feeling and I, and it was all still there. Huh. And and it was such a strangely sort of emotional moment that I actually literally cried. Mm. I couldn't I couldn't quite believe that this this sort of just that reminder could could ignite that again and 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 bring it all back. And you know, I got a few bars in and then I forgot the next bit as well. And if I want to play the whole song, I will have to go through that whole process and, and just remind myself of each little bit. But mm. it was such a you know, it it really sort of moved me that that somehow this whole thing that I thought I'd completely forgotten from over a decade ago was somehow still there somewhere. Mm. Uh, and so I thought that would be an interesting thing to talk about. Do, do you, I mean, you've kind of maintained your musical ability, so you may not have that with music. But do you do you know what I'm talking about? Like, have you experienced that with with anything else? Or? Probably two things. Yes, um, not on the level that you describe. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, the mm. not only the the you know the the idea of 
the, the way it makes you feel to not being able to physically accomplish something that you used to be able to many, many years ago uh, that you kind of expect, mm. oh, I should be able to do this, and then you can't. You know, that feeling right. is, can be crushing, um, especially, I mean, it's generally uh, physical things. Right. Yeah, this is both physical and mental, which is kind of, I expect myself to degrade physically, right. but I don't think I'm ready for, like, the mental side of that. Right, right. <laughs> so I haven't actually experienced anything on that magnitude, but um, the similar experiences that I have had are with playing table tennis and speaking Chinese. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, that's. <laughs> I should have thought it would come down to those two things. Yeah, in, that, in in yes, in in that um, these are two things that I don't do very regularly, uh, actually hardly mm. at all. Uh, and also, um, I did basically every day, all day for one year when mm. I was nineteen. Right, right. Sounds like a similar sort of intense for a brief moment when you were young, and then completely abandoned after that. Right, right. right. And so. One of the amazing abilities that you gain from playing table tennis, mm. this is really weird, but one of the amazing things that you gain is the uncanny supernatural ability to catch the ball with either your left or your right hand mm. when it's coming at you at high speed without actually looking at it. Mm. Like it's true. It's really weird that like once you when you play table tennis enough, you uh, develop this sort of I guess. Intu intuition of where your hand is in three-dimensional space mm. and when you have the ball coming at you at high speed obviously with table tennis the game is very very fast and uh, it's very very uh, granular you know like tiny little differences in uh, position and angle and speed will create big results on the other end of the table mm. and uh, you get very good at sort of you obviously can't look at the ball when the game is going that fast and the ball is that small. Mm -hmm. And so you, you get very good at basically looking where you want to hit the ball uh, or looking at your opponent rather than looking at the ball itself. Mm. And that extends to being able to catch the ball if it's coming at you very, very quickly in the same way that you can you know block it or hit it with uh, a table tennis racket that you might be holding. Mm. So that's happened to me many times where I've uh, been playing table tennis and I can usually get back into the swing of <laughs> get back into the swing of playing table tennis um, very quickly. Uh, maybe it takes me sort of 10 or 15 minutes to get back into the, um, uh, into the rhythm of it. Mm. But this weird ability to sort of somebody smashes a ball at you, but for example, you're not ready, so you want to catch the ball to stop the game, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. I'd be looking at the other person. The ball's coming at me. I'm still looking at them because I'm talking to them. It's like, no, wait, wait a moment. And my hand has already gone right. out into three-dimensional space and caught this ball coming at me at these amazing right. velocities. So that's right. that's one thing. Yeah. The other thing is is Chinese language. Uh, I've noticed that my ability to speak Mandarin Chinese has neither deteriorated or improved, obviously, mm -hmm. over the, you know, uh, what, 19 years that I haven't been in mm. China. That's interesting because you'd, you'd sort of expect it to deteriorate if you're not actively using it, right? I don't know why this is. Like, I have no idea why it is. But like, when I get into a mm. conversation in Chinese now, mm. the level that I had when I like 19 years ago comes back fairly mm. easily. Anything mm. beyond that is just too difficult. Like, I, very quickly, mm. I, I come up against the same limits that I did 19 years ago. So mm -hmm. perhaps there's something to do with, you know, um, uh, youth elasticity of the brain in youth i don't know no but that that is interesting i wonder if there's a 
a sort of barrier that once you cross it, you don't tend to fall yeah. beneath it again. Because I find, like my Spanish, uh, I have sort of got to a certain point and then abandoned it and my ability has deteriorated and then I've got back up to that point quite a few times, right? Mm. Because I think maybe I haven't crossed that threshold. Mm. But for example, if I watch my mum, who lived in Spain for 11 years and was fluent, as far as I can tell, I remember a couple of times being struck when somebody would phone her up who was an old friend from Spain. And so they'd be talking in Spanish on the phone, you know, 20 years after she left. Hmm. And it was interesting, both because she could just switch into this mode, having not really spoken it very much at all uh, in all this time she's been away. She would switch into this uh, Spanish mode where she's just speaking completely normally. But not only that, I felt that she actually physically looked younger. Hmm. Like there was something about the expressions on her face and the way that she moved and... It was almost like sort of reliving that time in a kind of weird way that, she, I, you know, maybe it's my imagination, but she, she, it struck me that she, to my eyes, looked younger just in that moment while she was speaking Spanish on the phone. So it's interesting how these are sort of connected, all these ideas of sort of knowledge and youth and memories. And, yeah. And so on. Yeah, um, that could potentially be because maybe a body language or facial expression that's used. Yeah, when speaking. yeah, yeah. I think it could well be. And yeah. because you don't see her speaking Spanish that regularly, mm. perhaps like that brought back memories of seeing her, uh, you know, years ago doing that. Um, perhaps interesting. So you're saying it might be on my end. I'm not sure. I'm. Not, it could be. It could be an observational thing that it's like. Something about that triggered something that I internally associate with you. Right, exactly. Or it could be what I originally thought it was, which is that that the the facial expressions and the body language and stuff were actually physically more sort of youthful expressions. Mm. That's also possible. I don't know which of those things you know it actually was, or it was all just my imagination. Like I have no idea, but it struck me as interesting at the time. I think it's um, amazing testimony to your. Uh your tenacity and determination to actually take a piece of music even though you don't really sort of formally play piano but you're just sort of working your way through sheet music note by note in order to get a song that's mm. that's amazing like i don't know many people who could actually uh, <laughs> who would have that level of uh, determination but it was yeah i don't i don't know if i could do it now i had a lot more free time back then yeah. <laughs> um but i don't know if it was a good idea like it was it, it was good it was a nice feedback loop for me because I could, I you know, I could play these songs that I really liked and it sounded impressive. Right. But I only ever learned to play like four songs. <laughs> like it took such a long time to learn each song that I never grew into being able to kind of adapt the knowledge that I'd gained mm. learning one song to be able to pick up the next song more quickly. I think that's the advantage of a more sort of formal approach to, to learning if I'd have learned you know, practiced scales and learnt proper technique and right. and so on, then maybe I would have been able to just... And learnt how to read sheet music properly. Right. And then maybe I, I would have been able to... More effort up front, which would have been annoying and boring up front, would have lent, then meant that later on I could have gone through the whole Tom Waits book and just be able to play any song in the book. Whereas mm. now it's still just as much work to choose, 
any one of those songs and try and play it. And some of them are just fundamentally out of my reach, right? right. I would uh, love your thoughts on a video that I watched on uh, YouTube from previously mentioned uh, Adam Neely, one of my favorite uh, mm. YouTube channels and musicologists on, on YouTube. Um, he did recently did a fascinating uh, experiment with the idea of learning to play a piece of music without actually playing it. So he had mm. he had a train ride that was mm. uh, quite long, so he thought he would try this experiment mm. with actually trying to uh, use his forearm. He's a bass guitar player, but he was trying to use his forearm mm-hmm. to learn a piece of uh, classical, I think it was Bach, I believe, I'm not sure, but uh, mm-hmm. from sheet music. So he had the sheet music there. He had his forearm to finger mm-hmm. things out on. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's all he had, so no, no instrument. Mm. Um, and so, over the course of this train line, this train ride, he was trying this experiment to see if it's possible to learn a piece of music without ever playing it, or at least a part of this piece of music. Mm-hmm. And it actually worked. Mm. And and when mm. you see him playing it, so when he arrived at his destination, he got out his bass guitar, and I think there was one false start, but after that his fingers just sort of mechanically went automatically through the piece that he had learnt. So mm. um, it's, it was not a very scientific experiment, of course, but the other important point that he makes in the video that is that does this mean that nobody has to play instruments? No, of course not. <laughs> like a, a prerequisite for this actually working is that you do need to have many, many, many years of experience on your instrument. Right, exactly. I was going to say it, was, it's, it sounds very interesting but he has the advantage of having an intimate feeling for the for the scale exactly and the feeling of the instrument so he can sort of imagine how what he's doing on his forearm is going to map to to what you do on the actual instrument and if you get that slightly wrong if you're playing the actual instrument you'll hear you you play the wrong note right but uh yeah if you if you're very familiar with it i can see how that would work right. but he he um when you see his expression after having successfully played through the passage that he learnt without mm-hmm. playing it on the bass uh, it, it's sort of uh, you can see that he has also a weirdly emotional experience at seeing that he can actually do this yeah but as you said though it it's critical that you have a um you know that you can easily imagine what it feels like to play your instrument mm and that obviously you have a good ability to, uh, like a lot of musical experience and training, to be able to actually sort of visualize the sound in your head as you're playing it uh, on your forearm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, these are two kind of prerequisites of this actually working. But, yeah, that's a, a fascinating video, which is also a weirdly emotional experience, not unlike yours. Oh, yeah, put that in the show notes. It sounds sounds interesting. So I have um, a, an excellent nugget here to... Uh, to continue on to, which you're going to love. Okay. You're going to love this. Hit me with it. So my wife, um, so this past uh, week, my entire family has caught the flu. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you were saying. Shame. Yeah, and it's been um, uh, it's been very rough. Uh, and my wife uh, fa- found this fantastic article uh, on a Japanese website mm. dated December 2018. Mm. Okay. The headline is a little bit clickbaitish <laughs> <laughs> um, in the Japanese sense, but... Um, the headline is like uh, amazing discovery. The influenza virus can be neutralized in 15 seconds by black tea. <laughs> <laughs> 
So in 15 seconds. If you actually needed any other reason to drink black tea, then uh, <laughs> this is it. So basically... That must be why nobody ever gets the flu in England. Exactly. That's what, that's, We're just completely immune. That's, that's what I said. That like, you know, doesn't... The, the, the apparent, <laughs> apparently, if you drink black tea with milk, then this, this whole... This whole thing is bunk. Uh, counteracts yes. the, uh, the, the neutralization. Right. So anyway, um, here's their scientific process, and mm-hmm. it's interesting because it's kind of, kind of, sort of legit from a statistics point of view. It, uh, mm-hmm. Quite ridiculous from a like a, a chemical point of view, I guess. But kind, it's interesting their process. So basically, what they did mm. is. It was an experiment run at a company, a large corporation in Japan. Mm. They took a sample set of 442 people at the company. Okay? Mm. Now, from a period of uh, four months, from November in 2017 until March 2018, they conducted this experiment Mm -hmm. with their 442 people. So Mm -hmm. the first thing they did is they polled these people over these four months how many people caught the flu. Mm. And of those people, how many had influenza vaccinations and how many didn't? Mm-hmm. Okay. So of the people who had uh, an influenza vaccination, mm-hmm. um, 8.3% caught the flu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is compared to 19.8% of people caught the flu who had not taken uh, or had not received influenza vaccination. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this proves that influenza vaccinations are somewhat effective. Oh, it implies it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so the next step that they did is that they took just the people who had not received influenza vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, they polled these people to find out how much tea, how much black tea, so specifically black tea as in korcha, mm-hmm. how much black tea these people drunk, mm-hmm. and then cross-reference that with whether or not they got the flu in this period. Mm-hmm. Okay, so people who drunk black tea every day, mm-hmm. there were 14.9% of people who drunk black tea every day got the flu. Mm-hmm. People who mm. drunk black tea once a week, mm-hmm. 19.6%. Mm. People who drunk black tea about once a month, 23.2%. Mm. People who drunk black tea... Are people who rarely ever drunk black tea, Mm -hmm. 24.6%. So So the more tea you drink, the less likely you are to get the flu. So this proves what us tea drinkers have known all along, that (laughs) tea is good for you. And uh, if you do drink it, you will not catch the flu, or at least you have, you know, (laughs) that less percentage chance. So there's a table at the bottom which shows the... Uh, that I think they cross-referenced it along with other kinds of things that Japanese people do to prevent uh, getting sick. Mm-hmm. So this kind of goes back a little bit to our uh, conversation previously about the Japanese tendency for preemptive medical procedure, uh, not procedure, preemptive medical hacks, I guess is the <laughs> best way to put it. Um, Preventative so, medicine. <laughs> right. Yeah. So basically um, the figures that they came up with was a vaccination against the flu is 58% effective, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Drinking mm-hmm. black tea is number two, coming in at 34% effective. Mm-hmm. Um, gargling water mm-hmm. uh, is 14% effective. 
I'm I'm going in in reverse order here. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, eating yogurt regularly, eleven percent. Mm. Washing your hands, eight percent effective at preventing you from getting the flu. Washing washing your hands less effective than eating yogurt. Right. Um, <laughs> making sure that the room is nicely humidified mm. is zero percent effective <laughs> at, re- at reducing the flu. What does zero percent effective mean? Does that mean exactly half got the flu? Like, <laughs> I, I does that mean a hundred percent of people who use humidifiers get the flu? Does zero percent effective at at preventing it mean a hundred percent effective at getting it? Are those reversible? <laughs> Uh, I, I think I'll, I'll have to forward this, uh, this scientific data for you to analyze later. Um, they get better as you go down, though. I'm very happy with uh, the, um, the second to last one. But uh, here we go. The, the next one is doing absolutely nothing mm-hmm. is minus 16% effective at preventing you from getting influenza. Minus 16. Well, that answers the question about reversing that because minus 16% effective wouldn't mean it's impossible to be over 100% likely to get right. it. So it must mean... You know, more than fifty percent of the people, or something like right. that. Right. Then, um, uh, consuming large quantities of vitamin C mm-hmm. was minus twenty-one percent effective. Minus twenty-one. So that's good. Mm. Um, that's interesting because mm, in Japan, um, that kind of like vitamin C, uh, you know, throat lolly, mm-hmm. or uh, you know, vitamin C fortified water, or that, that, that's big business. That, mm-hmm. but it's actually mm-hmm. minus twenty-one percent effective in preventing you from getting the flu. And here's the one that I love. Here it is. Uh, please don't share this with your wife, but wearing a mask mm-hmm. is minus 35% effective at preventing you from getting the flu. <laughs> uh-huh. So The least effective of all methods. Yeah, well, actually, there's one more. The very, very least effective of all methods is uh, disinfecting your hands. <laughs> That's also a common one. That comes in at minus 39% uh, effective. So... There are some interesting statistics for you to share uh, next time any Japanese person that you know or not insists <laughs> on wearing a white mask to prevent getting the flu virus. Please inform them that you're actually increasing your chance of getting influenza by doing that. <laughs> However, you still have a chance to reduce it, like basically minus 35% wearing a mask or mm. 34% less likely to get influenza if you drink black tea every day. So. More or less, if you wear a mask and drink black tea, they almost perfectly cancel each other out. Uh, that would, so yeah, but, uh, you're you're fine. <laughs> It'd be like minus one percent chance of getting uh, of getting the, the flu if you did that. Right, right. So re- we recommend that uh, combined with um, get, getting a vaccination uh, and rinsing your throat and eating yogurt, all of these things will improve your chances of uh, avoiding the influenza virus in the cold seasons. So there you have it. Just out of interest, this this company that conducted this study with its 400 employees, what business was this company in? <laughs> does it does it mention? <laughs> um, let me. Yes, it's. Uh, well, I won't mention the name of the company. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of these like massive Japanese corporations that does weird things that nobody really uh, knows. Uh, actually, I'm, actually, I don't know. I've kind of heard of the company, but. I'm just pulling up their website now to see if I can figure out what it is they actually do. Do they sell tea? Um, no. <laughs> this this is uh, well, it is related to agriculture. Okay. They they do have, and this is superb, superb Japanese web design right here. Like you just, it's like a like an explosion of text, and you you just can't see anything that that is. I mean, yeah. Um, let me just have a look. Uh, 
here we go. We'll look at the Keisha uh, Gayo, which is Keisha Nei, which explains what they do. Um, yeah, okay. So it looks like they they are actually uh, responsible for tea production. <laughs> so oh, slightly so surprising. Slightly slightly biased, <laughs> maybe. Um, who are their employees who don't drink tea? <laughs> <laughs> After conducting this experiment, we fired the oh, That's right. <laughs> so we'll uh, we will provide a link to this article for any of our uh, our um, listeners who uh, can read Japanese. It is in Japanese, unfortunately, so uh, mm. we won't be able to assist you if you are, if you are not uh, able to read Japanese here. But uh, yes, I think. Um, you know, I really didn't need any extra reason to drink tea because I love tea. Mm. So but this is <laughs> this is great. So there you have it. Please drink your morning cup of tea tomorrow with the uh, the reassured thoughts that you are you are making a day that will be thirty four percent less likely for you to catch influenza on. Uh, I know I will be doing the same. Indeed, it doesn't go into detail about like black tea whether that. Or like what happens if you put sugar in it? Mm. Well, I don't really know anybody who has tea with sugar and no milk. Uh, but anyway, what what happens if it's like chai or like a black tea variant? Or like this mm. is Earl Grey any different from like I don't know like Assam tea versus uh, you know any any of the different black tea variants? Are they different somehow? I don't, I don't really know. And they didn't. I mean, for a Japanese article, they didn't do a comparison with green tea either. So. Right. The green tea could be more or less effective than black tea in this meaningless measure of effectiveness. <laughs> I am, I'm, I have to say, I am somewhat happy about the mask one, though, like minus thirty-five percent. After our episode, which um, we'll have to uh, recommend listeners to go and listen to if you haven't already, about uh, the uh, wonderful Japanese fascination with the white surgical mask. Mm. Yes, I'm, I'm rather happy that they're scientifically. Uh, rigorous <laughs> research proved that you're 35% more likely to catch influenza if you have a mask on. I'm pretty sure you could also find an equally scientifically rigorous article published by the company that makes surgical masks. <laughs> That's right. They, which says it's actually 500% more effective. I mean, they have, they have those fancy graphics that you see on the TV ads too, right? With all the, like, the, do, the, yeah. the, 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 like the red nasty looking air particles going through the, the mask filter and coming out as like these blue bubbles on the other side. <laughs> well, that's got, that's got to be legitimate really. For sure. Yeah. It's uh it's it's kind of I mean we're making fun of this of course but it's it's kind of lovely as well it's kind of quaint and endearing you know the the on the one side there is the the, the Japanese this this tendency to for pre- preemptive medical hacks or whatever I called it <laughs> but on the other side you know it, it's funny that like when you live in Japan I think we talked about it well maybe we didn't but like basically maybe once every four to five months perhaps there'll be a Boom, air quotes, boom. They, they call it boomu in, in Japan, in Japanese, mm-hmm. which is where something will become incredibly popular as being good for you. Uh, and we, we've seen that previously with natto and dark chocolate and red wine. Mm. and Yeah, we did talk yeah. about this. Yeah. And, and white socks, although that wasn't for health reasons. That was just was another boom. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, so with this article out in, uh, what was it, De- December of 2018, mm. uh, I'm sure that all the, uh, the shops are now completely out of stock Stocking of, of up on black, black tea. tea. So. Yeah. Excellent. Speaking of Japan, actually, I saw a, a tweet the other day that sort of got me thinking. Because uh, you know the emperor is abdicating at the end of April, right? That's very interesting, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So we're going to be um, we're going to be entering a new Japanese era 
from the 1st of May. For those who don't know, the Japanese calendar uses a slightly different dating system, whereby the, the year still starts on the 1st of January, like ours, and it's got all the same months with the same number of days. But the the year itself is measured differently. So instead of being measured from more or less somewhere within a few years of the birth of Christ, it is measured from the beginning of the reign of the current emperor. Mm. So we are currently in the Heisei era, which began in 1989, 1990-ish. I think, it was, I think it was the 1st of January, 1989. That was some good pronunciation there, Denny. <laughs> and then before that was the Showa era. Uh, and before that was Taisho, and before that was Meiji. Uh, and so each, each of these eras uh, is, is from the start of the reign of, of whichever emperor. So if we did this in the UK, for example, we would be in the... Elizabethan era or second Elizabethan era now, I suppose. Mm. I mean, I guess in England we do talk about the Elizabethan era or the Tudor era, but we don't me- we don't actually write that as part of the dates. But in Japan, like this year, as it stands now, is Heisei thirty one, the thirty first year of of the current emperor's reign. Right. The interesting thing is that that will change on. May the 1st. Right. So starting May the 1st, oh, no. this year oh, no. will be a different year. So it will be the first year of the new emperor's reign. You're right. Uh, and <laughs> there's a lot of interesting ramifications for, that- for this. The person who tweeted was a programmer friend of mine. And of course, there are a lot of programming ramifications. Right. Uh, but this this has impact all over calendar manufacturers, yeah. you know, TV, all all sorts of you, things. You're right. I, I I'd, it, I'd heard about this from my wife actually, and it was it was fascinating. Mm. And I'd been meaning to talk to you about it, but and she did tell me that it's going to be halfway through this year. But I didn't think that yeah, that's going to mean that next year will be new name for the first like five months, and then mm-hmm. new name year two for the, the second five months. Uh, sorry, the, for the remainder of the year, isn't it? Is that what what is going to happen? It's for the first four months and then from the first of it. Yeah, so I checked because I wondered whether, you know, having just celebrated New Year in Japan, this is what got me started thinking about all this. Right. Uh, And we all said, you know, Heisei 31, year of the the boar or whatever. You know, like, uh, this is a new year, right? And then I thought, well, hang on a second. Is this going to last all year? And then is the new one, is the next one going to be, you know, is it the first year that that emperor was new year so so anyway i checked and it's not it is the current emperor which means that it will start on the 1st of may the 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 current year the year won't end it's not doesn't count as the year ending right but the year will be renamed oh. <laughs> so we'll go to bed on april the 30th right are there, how many days are there in april 31st april 31st and it will be heisei 31 and then we wake up on may the 1st it will be something one. And the reason I keep on saying something is because we don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, so what, the, what usually happens is that the year changes when the emperor dies. Right. right? Usually the, there's a, a changeover only happens when the emperor dies. And so the emperor dies, and as part of his sort of funeral celebrations and whatnot they announce the name of the new emperor. That's a big part of the changeover right. of the of the imperial name, right? And these names are not... It's not the same name as that actual person's name. That's the other 
detail. Right. Uh, so, for example, the current emperor is Emperor Akihito, but his he will be remembered after his death as Emperor Heisei. Right. And and throughout his life, the name that we used for the years that are named after him is also Heisei. So they use this sort of right legacy name, the name that they will be remembered uh, as after their death. That name may or may not have been decided, but it has not been announced yet. Right. And the other unusual thing this year is that the emperor is not dying. He is abdicating. Right. Which means that we actually unusually have a bit of insight into when this is going to happen. Mm. You know, usually it's very sudden. The emperor dies and the year changes over then and there, you know. I don't know how long it usually takes, whether it's on the day or whether there's like some middle period. But on this occasion, we have the, you know, we have foresight. We can say, well, no, it will happen on May the 1st. Mm. And so a lot of companies have been kind of saying, well, hang on, you know, I make calendars, for example. Uh, I want to start printing the new calendars for the new year. Right. In fact, they, the, you know, the calendar making companies wanted to sell all their calendars in the run up to New Year. Right. Ideally, they would make a single printed calendar, which for the first four month has, months has Heisei written on it. Right. And for the latter months has whatever the new name is, right? Right. But they couldn't do that. You know, they've been petitioning the government to say, just tell us, <laughs> tell us what the new name is going to be. Ah. And the government is like, no, we can't do that, you know. Um, and there's obviously, there's especially the, the more sort of traditional nationalist right-wing side of the, of the government is like, no, it's very important. It's got to be as late as possible. So they've been having this sort of back and forth argument for quite a while now over when they're going to announce it. And I think they've said that the new name will be announced on April the 1st, <laughs> which is a slightly unfortunate choice of date. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so wait a moment. This this means that if you are just referring to the year 2019 on the Western calendar, mm-hmm. it can actually be referred to by two names. Is that correct? It will be Heisei 31 or something something 1. And it could be either of those that refer to the same year. Is that correct? If you're just talking about the whole year. I don't know, actually. That's an interesting thought. I mean, right now, everyone would say Heisei 31 because it is Heisei 31 and because that's the only name they have that they can use. Right, but in, in, in the future, like when you... But in years to come, when they remember, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, when did you open your bank account, sir? Well, I opened it. You know, I wonder if it will be like if if I open a bank account and when you open your bank account, you've got to write the date and stuff right. using this format. You're not allowed to write use the Western format. And so on. that's what it'll be on the records. And so it may be that when you're saying what year you opened your bank account or, for example, your birth date, like when you write your birth date on a form. Right. If someone is born now. Yeah. Hey, say 31 January. Perhaps they will write, hey, say 31 January. And perhaps the person born in you know, June right. will write whatever the new one, one June. I don't, that's a really interesting thought. I hadn't thought I think about in that it. particular case, like with a birth date, yes, it's going to depend on yeah, where. Because there is a date. Exactly, on right. either side of, of right. that line where, where right. the date falls. But if you're referring to the entire year. Yeah. So this is, yeah, it's interesting. My, my wife was saying that um, as part of the discussion, one of the things that they are prioritizing is that the new name mm. doesn't start with the letter T, S, or H. Uh, because of because they've used the uh, the first letter in the short exactly form, right? yeah so when right. you fill out a form in uh, in Japan that has the style of date there'll be like this little checkbox and H means Heisei and the era before that was called Showa and that's represented by S 
And the, re- the era before that was called Taisho, and that's represented by T. So Taisho, Showa, Heisei. So the next one, mm-hmm. if it is called like, you know, Station 13, which would be an excellent name, <laughs> uh, then. Good choice. That, Stick that one in there. Yeah, they, they would write S, and then you wouldn't be able to tell if that meant Station 13 or Showa. Right. Naturally, it would mean Station 13 because all roads lead to Rome. But anyway, <laughs> so they're actually intentionally looking for some name that will not start with these letters. And my wife and I have been thinking. We think it's going to start with A. Mm, a, interesting. Something A. Why do you think it's going to start with... What do you mean something A? Well, sorry, A something, I should say. A something, right. Okay, I was going to say. So yeah. why do you think that? Uh, we think that it's going to contain un, A-N, mm-hmm. like, I don't mm-hmm. know, like unte or something like that. Right. No no reason that just, that seems like a good choice. <laughs> like compared to all the... Ante seems too obvious. Yeah. If they pick Ante, that'll be, that'll be dasai. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, but with, we're thinking it's going to have un in it, and it's gonna, so it's going to start with a... But it, you're right. I mean, this is it's one of the, the, the quaint, but actually, you know, very, fairly um, important, interesting, unique aspects of Japan. Like when I first got there mm. uh, and we had these forms, like I had no idea... That the right. the year system was different in Japan, like it's just completely like wow, that's fascinating. Like I just right. wouldn't even conceive that it would be different. And right, right. these forms will have like this little S H T, and I can remember asking somebody. I think it was like when I first got a mobile phone, mm-hmm. uh, and it had like these numbers there, and like S T H, and I wrote like uh, nineteen ninety nine because that was the year that that was when I arrived in Japan and I was doing this mm-hmm. and the person said no 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 it has to be Heisei whatever nineteen ninety nine is right and it was just like ten I, I can remember being stunned it's like what <laughs> it's, it's, it's different <laughs> so granted actually there will be many cases in life in Japan when you do use the Western year so it's not yeah it's yes. not entirely uh, by the Japanese calendar I don't really know what governs that decision like when people are putting together mm-hmm. a form for some kind of application how they choose which calendar system to go by i don't really know how they choose that but mm-hmm. i'm curious from a programmer's point of view is the western system much easier to handle because it's basically numerical i mean it's just an incrementing number so yes yeah, it's, it's very simple i think well, it got me started down a bit of a rabbit hole. I, I still don't totally understand exactly what all the ramifications are. None of my work is affected by it. But from what little research I did, it looks as if, uh, for example, Microsoft Windows and uh, something else, some other piece of software, I can't remember what, they actually have specific support mm. for this, where you they've got like a setting where you can which you can use to test for your own software you can you can test what will happen when this happens so you can set a date for like when the changeover is going to be and then they write the new name as in japanese they write gengo which means like the name of the era right uh, and in english they just write new era right and so you can when you're writing software you can set a date and say oh actually this date is going to be, you know, the changeover in my test. And then say you're writing a piece of calendar software and you want to see that it, on this d- previous date, it renders the current thing, Heisei 31 or whatever. And on the next date, it renders new era right. one see. or whatever. Yeah. So they actually have support in the operating system to help developers to sort of proactively 
develop their software to test for this. Of course, the majority of developers in the West are not even aware that this is a phenomenon. Right, right. <laughs> so, and it does it does require actual software support, I think, from the from the developers. The ICU is a group that that deals with sort of internationalization for. Uh, software in general and their libraries are reused by a lot of software and so i think if you're a programmer and you're using one of their libraries to do your date formatting for example you may just get a lot of the functionality for free like so long as you whenever they announce the name in april at some point in april you would need to download the latest version of the library and rebuild your software to use it uh, i'm getting i'm getting y2k bug vibes denny yeah like is it i mean it's the same thing right it's a date problem right. like the reason the y2k bug was a thing was precisely because of people using just the last two digits of the year rather than the full four digits and so when it rolls over everything resets to zero right and it's a similar sort of thing everything is resetting to one and you've got this new prefix uh, I think you, you don't get everything for free. Like if you're writing a calendar program, for example, and you usually write the year just at the top and then you have all the months, so you don't write the year next to each month, then what do you do when the name of the year changes midway through the year? Like you either don't reflect that at all. Mm. And so you have Heisei 31 and then the beginning of next year, it'll say something, something, two. new thing, yeah. two and you miss one completely or if you really you know as a developer you would think you're aware of this issue and you're like i want my software to feel sort of natural and to respect this changeover you may choose to render just on this special one-off case that only happens you know every few decades <laughs> you render the year midway through the year so you have uh you know, year than all the months and then in may you just render the year next to it obviously that sort of functionality would have to be custom for your application. Right. It's not something that, like, using the internationalization libraries will give you for free. Right. So there's a surprising amount of depth and thought, you know, not just in terms of dealing with programming bugs, right. which is an issue, but also in terms of design and thinking about how you're going to approach this that, yeah. I don't know, I think is very interesting. Yeah, I think, uh, um, <laughs> aside from that as well, Imagine the the thousands and thousands and thousands of application forms that are going to have to be reformatted to squash in one more little another yeah, an, another, another letter. letter. Yeah. Maybe, maybe they'll <laughs> and at very short notice because you know they're only going to have a month. Like it's announced on April the first, it changes on May the first. Right. All the banks and everything that have all their forms printed, and you have to do that. Like it's not none of it is on a computer still. If you are filling in forms in banks, you have to go with a pen and right. write it and hand call it and all the rest. Right. right, they're going to have to reprint, redesign, reprint all their forms like. Everyone is going to have to do this. Right. So it's, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Um, and the last time this happened was in like 1989. Ah. And there was just much less software. Yeah. Then. Like this is obviously a thing that has been a part of Japanese culture for hundreds of years. And so as, you know, the printing press has been developed and as written forms have been more of a thing obviously this has become more of an issue right i'm sure that in 1989 it was also a mad rush to get all these new things printed in time and so forth but the world that we live in now and the world that we were in in 1989 and just the, the number of things that are run on programs right rather than being managed by people has increased so much mm. 
that it feels like a a very different situation that we're going to be dealing with this time around. It's going to be interesting to see uh, a whether there is a sort of Millennium Bug style disaster. I mean, in the case of the Millennium Bug, it didn't actually turn out to be that problematic. But I think that's largely down to the the efforts of huge numbers of programmers and, and system administrators in the lead up to to the Millennium. And obviously, because this issue is so much more localized to Japan, a lot of people outside of Japan are not going to be aware of it and not going to know that they even have something to fix. Right. And so it may turn out to be a problem that, that manifests itself in a, in a worse way than the Millennium Bug did. Right. Uh, or it may just be fine. I'm not sure. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and I think the other thing that affects this is that there is that line between applications of the Western date in Japan, which is also very common, mm. you know, arguably just as common. Like you don't see these Japanese dates everywhere. Right. And, you know, the line between doing it that way or doing it with the traditional system so obviously the Western system isn't going to be affected at all by any of this, right? But the only the Japanese system will be, and well, we shall have to keep tabs on this. I think it's uh, yeah. probably a good thing because I can remember that many of the forms that I had to fill out that were uh, that had the old system on them tended to be like they look like sort of tenth generation photocopies because <laughs> 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 uh, you know despite the the high tech image that Japan has, it, it also has this this rather endearing tendency to be extremely analog at times mm-hmm. and uh yeah you know copy photocopy of copy of a photocopy of uh, mm. of an application form is is uh, something that will be no longer a problem after uh, in the second half of this year in uh, station 13 one <laughs> <laughs> maybe that doesn't work out so well <laughs> i was actually slightly hoping it would be uh that the year would change over at the new year because that would be much easier to remember Absolutely. that the, the year yeah. the new era started in 2020 like it's an easy mapping but i suppose 2019 and i think the current one was 1989 so it means that the last era was exactly 30 years or whatever it, you would you would think that seeing that in this case it's a bit unusual in that the uh, emperor is not not dying right. but it has has voluntarily chosen to to step down at that date mm. Uh, there was probably no doubt some some voices very very tactfully you know whispering in his ear you know you may want to consider doing this on january 1st <laughs> <laughs> it may be a little bit easier for everybody if you did this on january 1st yeah i'm not sure i wonder i mean i don't he didn't choose it i'm oh, sure right, i'm yeah. sure it was the government who set the actual date but i wonder if the financial year had something to do with it mm. because that ends in april could do. so it could be to do with could that could do yeah that's 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 a possibility. And doing it this year rather than next year, because next year is going to be the Olympics. And if they have to deal with all, you know, ah. potentially lots of problems coming up with the changeover, they wouldn't that want that to happen all at the same right. time. So. Right. That's true. 